0: To that night in Toronto. A personal journey through the music of the Tragically Hip album by album, track by track, show by show. Well, I guess there's no turning back now. The pilot episode covering the band's first EP had a gestation period somewhere between a human and an elephant. But now that it's out in the world, I need to make sure that it doesn't get lonely. So, we talked about the Tragically Hip's EP first time. Well, I say we, I did. And now we're into the album where I really first discovered them, which is Up To Here. So the album's released on MCA Records, uh, their label for the next five albums, taking in the first, really the first two chapters in the Hips musical book. The album was released in September 1989, rising as high as number nine in the Canadian charts, which I guess we let Billboard keep for us and not the CBC, which is odd, but hey, you know, charts is charts. Anyway. So what was going on for me in 1989? It was a pretty big year for me as I finished my post-secondary schooling in May, living in Calgary, and had my diplomas in mechanical and aeronautical engineering, which of course led me to you know, making my own podcast. So as I got out, I was trying to look for work in a massive, massive downturn in the aerospace industry. For those of you who aren't nearly as old as I am, I think it's, it's, it's something where you really need to know that this was... Yeah, it was was a problem. We had a massive stock market crash in 87. And all right, so we didn't have, you know, COVID and everything else is going on right now, but it wasn't good. Anyway, the world was still kind of living in the shadow of Reagan and Thatcher with George Bush Sr. in the White House and Brian Mulroney about halfway through his occupancy of 24 Sussex Drive. So things were getting pretty bleak out there. Adding to the bleakness was, you know, the summer of 88, before I started my last year of school, that Gretzky was traded to LA from Edmonton. The Oilers lost in the first round against the Kings, and then the fucking Flames won the Stanley Cup. You know, living in Calgary, there was, as an Edmonton fan, it was a lot to handle. So I just couldn't get out of Dodge quick enough. But before that, I went along with a number of classmates farther south in Calgary to a place with the unlikely name of Tabor, which... Now is known as the home of corn in Canada, but back then was just someplace south of Brooks. So we went down there to witness the wedding of art. The affair was fun. I'm pretty sure we all got pretty hammered as there was a free bar. This being 1989, we had a pretty wide range of age in the class. So it wasn't that weird for one of us to get engaged and married right after graduation. So once I got back to my hometown, I... It was a summer of collecting rejection letters from various aerospace firms, which I kept for a long time. I mean, some of the stationery was nice and it was all handwritten. It was very pleasant, but basically said the same thing, you know, son, sorry. So... I was uh, took up occupancy that summer as a, a construction worker for us, a local carpentry firm. So I wasn't I wasn't so good at, at building things, but man, smashing things down and digging holes and stuff was definitely in my wheelhouse. One of the highlights was taking a jackhammer to a massive concrete loading dock, and and the night was spent out with a um, with my high school crush and her best friend with my uh, my good mate at the time, which was. You know, you look for your highlights there, you know, they're few and far between, but that was a great night out. So by the time September rolled around, I'd been looking for work for a while and it became clear that I wasn't going to find a job sitting in a, where I staying in a town that had no aerospace industry. So I packed most of my worldly possessions into my 76 Nova, hit the road and carowacked it for a while. The Nova was my first car, sold to me by my Uncle Vince, who was uh, my godfather, for about a grand. Well, not about a grand, for exactly a grand. So I turned my gaze west and drove out towards Vancouver. Got absolutely nowhere and really didn't have a lot of places to stay out there. So I then turned around and drove east, stopping briefly in Calgary to stay with my cousin for a bit before going on to Winnipeg, the center of aerospace in Canada that is in Toronto or Montreal, which is an even longer drive. So I spent about 10 to 12 weeks couch surfing and working for a another construction company as a relatively unskilled laborer. There, there was a lot of that that summer. And, you know, stayed with some former classmates, the aforementioned Art, until he moved out from Winnipeg back to Calgary. And then with, uh, with Ernie, who, uh, who was a good guy. They were, they were really put up with me. It was, um, it was a lot. We had a lot of fun. And um, this was where I really started to find some interesting music of my own. So in September, I started to hear this song, Blow It High Doe, which really stood out amongst the, you know, the, the Aerosmith, you know, of uh, Jenny's Got a Gun vintage and Tears for Fears, Rubbish for third album. I mean, Sowing the Seeds of Love or as or as the uh, the local radio station did in a great parody of it, uh, Stealing the Beatles stuff. So having heard you know Blow It High Doe, I'm like, wait, who are these guys? You know, what else have they got going on and What's coming next? So let's get into this. As previously discussed, Up To Here was released in September of 1989 on MCA Records. It was produced by Don Smith, a producing legend who was known as Golden Ears. In 1989 alone, he worked with The Hip, Roy Arbison and Don Henley. And the difference between his work and the work that Kenny Shields did in the first EP is massive. I mean, they, they developed and had a complete sound. You know, they had a sound of their own, a sound that was very much belonging to them. Without further ado, I bring you up to here, which starts with Blow It High Doe. Shot one. So when bands have a great first album with a great first single, I think they can fall into what one of my old high school friends called, or yeah, I extrapolated from his statements, the, the Sultans of Swing Vortex. Where the band spends the rest of their careers trying to live down and outshine their first single. Given the vicissitudes of rock and roll, Blow at High Doe could have been the hip's high watermark. Wait for this. Yeah, I can get behind anything picture a crowd full of people and now we're all jumping up and down it remained a staple of their shows until the very end and it was one at once the heart of the hip and maybe but maybe really you know their 15th best song However, each time the first chords of it rang out across the arena, theater, or stadium, the hip were occupying, there was a collective intake of breath and in an anticipation of Gord singing, I can get behind anything. At which point the entire crowd would pogo for the next half of the verse at a minimum. Hey, depending on age, you know, mileage may vary. I remember sitting in my brother's backyard. This was the year he got married, so this would have been this would have been 2010. We were sitting there and I'd heard that the um, the hip were playing a gig, an outdoor gig in our hometown of Grand Prairie. And my brother, you know, whom I love, like, you know, for real, like, you know, what, what, wait, what have you heard? Well, anyway, he had the spectacularly high functioning calendar management skills to get together a party for the wedding party on the very same night. So I, who visited Canada from the UK and was back for about three weeks in our hometown, which had never had anyone worth seeing live, I mean, other than Dizzy Gillespie, we'll, we'll talk about that later, probably in a later episode, but uh, I went to, you know, the hoedown to meet the rest of the wedding party instead of somehow snagging a ticket to the hip. So it's not that I blame him, and it's not that I also missed... Chelsea beating Wigan eight 0 to confirm the the, uh, the English championship and uh, Chelsea winning the FA Cup, which which I did, but again, I will point out that I love him no matter what people say. I don't know. Have you heard something? I don't think I've heard anything. Anyway. We were in the backyard and we'd had dinner and we're having drinks and we're you know ch- chatting in a way that the Canadians do. and you could just barely hear the the band on the wind. And you could just hear in the background, it was, it was, you know, probably, what, eight, 10 kilometers away? It wasn't that, you know, it wasn't far, far, and being outdoors, it, it was close enough. But I could hear them start blowing high dough. And I could hear it when the you know, the drums kicked in and when the song really kicked off. You know, I would bet anything that I could have sung and moshed in time to the tune from where I was standing. So it, it is one of those songs that once, you know, defines a band but doesn't, you know, doesn't eclipse everything else that they've done. But, you know, I think in anyone's books, a hell of a way to start out the the album. I'll Believe in You, or I'll Be Leaving You Tonight, is one of those rare songs that have a successful pun at its title. The song is another example of a strong riff work accompanied by some great lead and backup interplay. Despite it being the second song of the album, it was never released as a single. But on the early tours, it played well and had all the components. Great licks, good chorus, and an awesome bridge. Yeah, at least one verse where it was spoken rather than sung with minimal instrumentation. But, you know, still kicking ass with a, a really strong backing vocal performance by Paul Langlois, which would, again, become a trademark throughout their work. So it's a great follow-up there and kind of keeps the tempo going, keeps it up and moving and brings you into the album while at the same time never really letting you know what's coming next. And we all know what's coming next. So what's next? New Orleans is sinking. So let's just think about it. In the span of the first three tracks of the first album, the hip had two songs that they would play throughout their careers, and that would become to define their live performances. So this song, I mean, let's start with what's there on the album, what's there for everyone to listen to. It's an amazing set of riffs by Rob Baker, starts off and is carried through the entire song. And it's one of the rare times where the guitar riff does also define the bass line that goes right through the song. So they almost they mirror each other and are, are tightly in sync. The lyrics tell a story about a New Orleans filled with blues, streets, bourbons, and rivers. However, the story told in the recorded song is only part of what actually gets told live. So the Hip are a great studio band with any number of albums to prove the point, but the live so are some kind of next level shit. You know, for a shorthand, when talking to people who've never heard of them, I, I kind of like to think of them as or refer to them as the Canadian fish. Because of the type of traveling fans they inspire, people who've seen them multiple times. I mean, I've seen them a number of times, but I've, there's nothing compared to people who might follow them coast to coast on a tour. Or I've seen them, you know, literally you know, dozens of times. So... Like fish, they attract a phenomenally loyal and long-lasting following. But unlike fish, they can write a coherent song. Yeah, you know, I, I tried. I really, really tried to get into Fish. I even had a colleague who was, you know, massively into Fish and tried and tried, and it just, it, it, it just never worked. I think there may just be a limit to how many bands like that you can fit into your your head. Whether it's, you know, Pearl Jam, Dave Matthews, and Fish, nah, can't happen. Anyway. When they played live for the first 10 years or so, New Orleans is sinking was a 7 to 10 minute centerpiece of any live show. They would do the first two verses as normal, and then the fun would begin. In the album, the words, pale as a light bulb hanging from a wire, would come about halfway through the track. When played live, there would be an entire other song and story inserted between the second chorus and the bridge. These stories ranged from a very strange one about a team that cleaned a killer whale tank to one about a nuclear submarine called the New Orleans. I remember hearing this for the first time. My, my memory says it was listening to the CBC during a Saturday working at the family business, but I'm not sure all the timelines line up for that. So, yeah, that may be something I think we may need to reinvestigate. So there were versions where they would just vamp onto the songs like Don't Worry Baby, which is what they did on the live album uh, Lie Between Us. And basically any place that Gordon wanted to go between the second chorus and the bridge they went. The only thing that finally stopped this from going through their entire career was Hurricane Katrina. So I don't have any really hard evidence from this. From about 2005-2010, I don't think they performed New Orleans Sync and Live. And I do remember seeing them here in London, and they did not play it. So I think that's the case. I think it was just it would just seem very strange and unusual. So you know, I don't remember hearing it. You know, citation needed. But it somehow seems to fit the narrative of the hip. Right. So you've blown the doors off with an amazing opening tune. You've then created one that becomes a a centerpiece of all your shows for the rest of your career. So what do you follow that up with? So 38 years old introduces a new song type to the hip's arsenal, a true ballad. Not just verse, chorus, verse, bridge, coda, but something that narrates a story with a bit of poetic license. So not, you know, my dog stole my pickup truck and I broke up with my girlfriend or not a conventional love song. The song starts with the words 12 men broke loose in 73 from Millhaven Maximum Security. So this is based on a real event, but there was definitely poetic license taken to get a good rhyme as there were actually 14 inmates that escaped in 1974, but that just wouldn't work. So when the song came out, and you'll see this throughout their their career, is people want to really find a deep meaning in the hip song. So there was a lot of rumors that the song was autobiographical and that Gord's sister was raped by an escaped prisoner or something like that. But in the end, that turned out to be just an urban legend. So the Millhaven Institute was built to replace the one in the hip's hometown of Kingston and opened up in the early 70s. So I like, love the song. It has a great change of mood and tone, and it's a type that will recur more and more. I would say it's especially moved into their second act when they move from MCA to Universal Records. So the song tells a true story that has elements of truth with enough changes to make the song compelling. Know, is performed as almost a duet between Gordon and Paul Langlois so what would normally be the backing vocals are almost kept up as the same level as the lead it's very effective the sound produced in the interplay so normally when the backing vocals stand out of the hip song and then they're filled bit up next as opposed to just straight harmony it's call and response and we'll see a great example of that uh, later in the later in this album but I've not seen this one live, and you know, looked at looked at a few archive performances when they all were, well, when we all were much younger, and they had certainly had individually and collectively a lot more hair. I mean, Rick Baker always had major hair, but uh, but this was one where it just, uh, you know, it just went there. So she didn't know. Again, great feel, driving song. Not a single, but another really, really strong tune that kind of keeps the, the feel of the album together and, uh, and, and goes along with it. But one of the things I criticized in the first, you know, the first EP was a lack of change of tone of the songs. And coming up is an example of how you change that. So the next song is Boots and Hearts, and I this is an example of up to here having songs that vary in tone and feel to break up the album. So there's a great bouncy acoustic guitar a really good kind of stripped back feel. Like a lot of times the hip will have a slower acoustic opening, and then it'll be like, um, you know, like waiting for the bass to drop on an EDM tune or the equivalent of that. And they'll, they'll almost always drop that bass or bring it in and get big, but not always. So it goes along through, you know, even babies raised by wolves will know exactly when they've been used, which is, you know, Cool. I think that it goes along and then you get to this, the chorus, which is, you know, Boots and Hearts is mentioned, but it's not the chorus. So the chorus goes fingers and toes, fingers and toes, 40 things we share. 41, if you include the fact that we don't care. So Boots and Hearts, a single... I mean, it's a great song and gives us such a an awesome feel that in the midpoint of the album, it's a bit like a palate cleanser as we get into the back half of the album. So we're six tracks into an 11 track album. So we're now you know going past the tipping point. Next up is, you know, every time you go. So every time you go, I mentioned earlier that a lot of the, you know, one of the, the trademarks of the interplays they use in the vocals is a call and response in the chorus. And you didn't have to wait long after she didn't know to get an example of that. So there's, you know, a good drum beat, a decent guitar, I like to drive the tempo of the song. And I guess it shows that not everything has to be blow a high or has to be New Orleans a sinkin' to contribute to the sense of a complete work. So every time you go is that, you know, is that feel where it's another solid track in the album. When the weight comes down, it's another decent song on the album. It is a bit... I would say the one thing, maybe if you could have a, I mean, if not a criticism, I mean, they're good songs, and I think when they played them alive on the road, they could get to perform pretty much the whole album. So The Weight Comes Down, a real solid, a real solid tune, has a lot of their basic, you know, characteristics, a strong vocal performance, and a really good chorus. I mean, The Weight Comes Down is, um, I would say it's, you know, maybe my fourth or fifth favorite song with, weight in the title you know obviously the the best song um with weight in the title is you know the weight by the band which is such a prosaic combination of names but doesn't really do justice to how amazing the song is or how terrific the band were another predominantly canadian group so when the weight comes down a good way to carry on into the back half of the album So, Trickle Down, really, again, a really strong song. I mean, it comes back up where you've got that paired back guitar lick and then, you know, going into a strong verse and chorus structure. The, um, you mentioned up at the top, talking about um, Flow at High dough and the, you know, the selfies of Swing Vortex. I think another thing that it could have been possible for the hip to really be pulled into would have been, you know, the Leonard Skinners. Triangle. Yeah, I'm not sure that works, but it, you kind of get what I mean. I mean, Leonard Skinner had lots of guitars and lots of guitar-y music, but you know, not exactly the most socially conscious, long-lasting, or you know, just complaining about Neil Young singing the song "Southern Man." is not really make you look very mature. So the hip could have very easily been that. I think, particularly because their fan base, you know, attracted you know people like myself, but also a lot of. Um, a lot of people that if you, if you followed or listened to Nirvana or Pearl Jam, Nirvana wrote in bloom for the type of, you know, for the type of fan that listened to the music, but didn't really get it. Pearl Jam wrote, this is not for you, you know, and to their credit, the hip never really wrote a song that kind of, you know, took fans they didn't like to task, but you know they did uh, they did their best to sort of eclipse that basic hey we're just here to play rock and think rock and roll we want to make the world a better place so the trickle down you know good tune really solid one as we get in get to the end of the album so another midnight is one that goes in with that kind of acoustic more of a major key feel to it has a bit of a bit of a floaty, ephemeral feel to it, and again, is that change of tone that is uh, that is essential? That that really kind of binds this album together as a piece of work. Is it isn't it isn't just you know driving guitar licks and you know power chords or you know or even a specific type of uh, vocal work? There's a lot of variability to it. So another midnight you know, lives into that tradition and sort of sets the you know, I guess sets the stage for what's gonna come. But it is a it is a great tune. And then we get into the last song on the album. So Opiated is the last song on the album and it uh, again has a great has a great feel to it. I'm kind of repeating myself a bit, and I think this is where having a sidekick, and I, I suppose I, or if not a sidekick, then someone will bounce this conversation off. So I still might recruit. You know, stay tuned for this, but uh, stay tuned to the channel. But I, I might recruit, might not. We'll see how it goes. So, Opiated is a good way to end the album. I think it's got a nice, you know, it's got a nice verse-chorus-verse to it. It has, like the rest of the albums, um, all the songs actually have an ending. You know, a lot of guitar bands and guitar music. It's always possible to just fade out everyone and just have it go on and on and on and on and on. But no, every every song on the album, and if not every song that they've ever wrote, has a beginning and an end. So, opiated is a good way to you know to end the album and to to finish it out. So there we are. We have eleven tracks on the album. Number nine in the charts. Released in the fall of 1989 and has uh, starts a journey that the hip then take with uh, with everyone. I mean, even even the fact that everybody shortened their name to the hip was, uh, you know, was something that was very unique and made the band feel like we were all friends from the start. So I mentioned briefly my cross-country journey that I started to get into this. So there's, there's, there's a, you know, like with every good song, there's, there's some, you know, past to that. So while I was in Winnipeg, we, uh. You know, working at a basic construction job and working with friends or working in engineering and living with friends or worked in an engineering group. We all had our weekends open. None of us had a, well, um, Art wasn't living with his partner at the time. Ernie didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have a girlfriend. So, yeah, we hit it pretty hard most weekends. I mean, I made just enough to sort of pay rent. Uh, eat, buy food that I could eat. <laughs> Didn't stop me sometimes eating my roommate's food. I don't know how great I was at being a roommate. I think I was at best Moyen, but thankfully it was for a short period of time. So we go out to bars and, um, there was a particular one that wasn't too far from where the apartment complex we were living in, in the, uh, I think this was in the East end of, uh, the west end of of Winnipeg, uh, it was not too far from Polo Park, which was a mall, which also was near the uh, the Winnipeg Arena and the uh, the Blue Bombers, the the local Canadian football team's stadium. So there was a bar there that they had had primarily cover bands, which was which was a lot of fun. I mean, a lot of live energy, a lot of great cover bands, and one of them, there was a one song that seemed to come up for about four or five weeks in a row from everything from a band with a woman lead singer to you know your sort of typical bunch of you know, a bunch of cover band guys. And it was one song where I couldn't quite place it. I knew I'd heard it before. I knew I heard it before. And finally, when I figured it out, it was, it was surrender by cheap trick, which I should obviously know because, you know, of the vintage that I am, but also because I had live at Budokan, uh, as a CD that I got with my, one of my subscriptions to the Columbia house record and tape club. Never did see the hip on this tour. Um, I really was kind of living hand to mouth at the time. And, uh, and moving around a lot, so concerts weren't really a, a thing. But there was another Canadian band that I discovered at this time that everybody discovered, which was the Bare Naked Ladies. They had just been kicked off of a bill uh, for a public event in Toronto because the the story was at the time, and whether this is true or not is, is, is anybody's guess, that the... Well, not... Actually, I think it is true that a councillor took an objection that... Um, that they had bare naked in their their name and that was offensive to women. So hey, millennials, you guys think you invented cancel culture? Nah. We've been having we've been dealing with bullshit like this all the time. So they weren't there was nothing really offensive they found the name childish. So they had their they went from probably somewhat obscure Toronto band to you know national sensation. And they had, at the time, they hadn't even have a, I wouldn't even have an EP. It was like a, a cassette single on uh, on steroids. It was it was called the Yellow Cassette. And I, I don't know if there's a digital version of it, but it had a early recording version of, um, if I had a million dollars, uh, Brian Wilson, a really bizarre and not entirely flattering cover of uh, Fight the Power by Public Enemy. And there was one more, there was one more on it that was part of, it, it was one of the first, al- you know, that ended up being in the first album they released, Gordon. But it was, uh, it was there. So I grabbed it at a late night, interestingly enough, at a late night record shop in uh, you know, in, in Winnipeg, of which there were a few. So, yeah, I had a, uh, I was enjoying myself. I didn't see a lot of concerts in the back half of that year. I think I saw, the beginning of the school year, I saw Eric Clapton uh, play live, but that was that was about it. It was really mainly focused on getting through the last year of school graduating and then trying to find a job which which I managed to find and even then before the hips last album was released, I got an interview through school. Uh, this was in this would have been in December. So by December I'd packed up and moved back from Winnipeg to st- Crash with family in um, Crash with family in uh, my, my cousin's place in Calgary. And, um, yeah, that was fun. We had some interesting nights. I was, you know, like many people at the time I was using alcohol as a, as a coping mechanism and I got really, really drunk and I didn't argue with my cousin, or at least I was being a bit grumpy and sarcastic, but she still put up with me. So, you know, she, uh, you know, big shout out to my, my cousin, Denise for, for giving a guy a place to stay. But even then I did manage to find a connection to the hip. So while I was living in Calgary, uh, after interviewing the job, but before hearing back about it, I was, um, I was staying in there and I was, where I went to a manpower temporary, uh, agency. So it's like a temporary employment agency. And it found a place to put me of all places at something I didn't even know existed was the McCormick's industrial spice packaging plant in Calgary. So it was a plant that packaged uh flavorings and spices for restaurants. So this included uh Taco Time, which was the Canadian answer to Taco Bell. We've we actually got our own Taco Bells, but there are still a few Taco Time. So it was my first experience and exposure to store-bought Mexican food as the Taco Time was in my was in Grand Prairie. So packaging the, you know, the the spices that they would use for that and and most interestingly of all, also a packaging for Kentucky Fried Chicken, where I got a good look at the recipe, uh, at the the spicing, you know, up close and personal. I think the two big secret ingredients are thyme, and to give it that texture, that coating, milk powder as the body of it. So rather than flouring the chicken or anything like that, they'd use milk powder, which when they deep fried it gave it a you know a real kind of crispy, crunchy texture. It maybe made up for the fact that I don't know that they they marinated it in buttermilk or anything like that. But, um, at any rate, one of the permanent people there, we were, we were talking, oh, the radio was on, I think. And, uh, boots and hearts came on and we were both, uh, you know, we were both, wow, that's an awesome song. Liked it a lot. I think if I had any kind of radar was better at, um, you know, flirting or recognizing when flirting was happening, something might've gone on, but as it was, yeah, no, no, nothing happened. So I went through that year, went through that December, um, you know, interviewed, I went out, I was at, uh, spent Christmas with my family, which after having spent a lot of time on my own, getting thrown around my entire family for Christmas in a, uh, after about three hours on Christmas, on the 23rd of December, I was like, I just want to drive back to, well, let just drive back to Winnipeg and I'll stay someplace by myself where it's quiet. So I managed to survive that. I went out with uh, with mates. One of them from uh, my mate uh, Ernie, uh, classmate Ernie from Winnipeg, whose place I stayed at, as I previously mentioned. We um, went out to New Year's Eve together. I got I had like most New Year's Eves. This one was a bit disappointing as I had way too much to drink way too soon. Ended up ill. Went up home like two seconds after midnight and then passed out. But. On the first working day of the new year, I got a call from the place that I interviewed at saying, hey, Vincent, would you like this job? And I said, yes. So within two weeks, I again packed up everything, everything that I owned, threw it in the back of my Nova, turned the car west and drove out to almost Vancouver, a place called Abbotsford, where I would begin the first real professional working job of my life. And get ready for the second album, The Hip was going to release, Road Apples. So there's a couple ways for you to get in contact. The first would be the official Twitter feed of the podcast, which is at TNITpod. So that's at that night in Toronto pod, or TNITpod. The other way would be through email, and the address for that is TNITpod at gmail.com. So feel free to respond with any comments, criticisms, you know, if, as long as they're constructive or not, you know, we'll take any attention I can get. So that's that's it for this episode. And we will be back with you soon to talk about road apples. You've been listening to That Night in Toronto, a podcast conceived, written, performed, produced, and engineered by Vince Savard. I appreciate the time you've taken me and the t- time you've taken for me and the time it took you to find this are available on Anchor.fm, Pocket Casts, and Apple Podcasts, coming soon to Stitcher and Spotify, and I think that pretty much gets them all. So thanks for your time, and we'll be speaking to you soon.